Hello and welcome back to another episode of Talking Terror, brought to you by the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre here at the University of East London. I'm John Morrison. Today's episode was recorded on the 11th of April 2018 at approximately 3pm GMT. So as always, if anything has happened in the meantime after recording, we're obviously unable to cover it in today's episode. Uh, if you want to find out more about the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre, be sure to check out our website, uel.ac.uk slash TERC, or follow us on Twitter, at TERCUEL, and tweet at us with the hashtag TalkingTerror. And if you want to leave a rating on the, uh, for this podcast, be sure to go to, uh, to rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen uh, to this recording, to this podcast. So when I started recording uh, Talking Terror and picking who I would, uh, who I'd be interviewing, generally speaking, I was picking uh, my friends and people who I'd worked with before. But one of the joys about this podcast is I've actually gotten to know loads of new people from the terrorism and extremism research uh, area. Um, through their engagement with this podcast and from reaching out to, to contact me about it. I'm one of the first people to do this. and Someone who uh, has thankfully been touting this podcast far and wide is today's guest. Uh, Julie Chernoff Huang is an Associate Professor of Political Science and International Relations in the Centre for People, Politics Mar and Markets at Goucher College. She's the author of Why Terrorists Quit, The Disengagement of Indonesian Jihadists, published by Cornell University Press, just out in 2018. I highly recommend everyone to go and buy this. Uh, Peaceful Islamist Mobilization in the Muslim World, What Went Right, published by Palgrave in 20, 2009. Obviously buy that one as well. And the co-author of Islamist Parties and Political Normalization in the Muslim World, published by uh, University of Pennsylvania Press in 2014. Her articles have been published in Terrorism and Political Violence, Asian Survey, Asia Pacific Issues, Southeast Asia Research, and Nationalism and Ethnic Politics. Her special issue of Terrorism and Political Violence, entitled Pathways into Terrorism, Understanding Entry and Support for Terrorism in Asia, is forthcoming in 2018. And her new research project examines the pathways to entry into Southeast Asian Islamist extremist groups. So if I've gotten anything out of uh, Talking Terror, it's been able to, it's been introduced to Julie's work and other people's work just like that. So I'm delighted uh, to welcome her on today's pod. Julie, thanks uh, so much for being, being here today. Thank you so much for having me on. So as you, as you know from listening to the pod, I always start off by asking, how did you first become involved in this area of research? In terms of about the book project or in terms of being interested in Islamist extremism broadly? Well, probably a bit of both. How did you first get broadly interested in Islamist extremism? And then we can uh, move on to the book project then. Well, um, when I was working on my dissertation in 2006, uh, my colleague um, from Win Sharif, the, uh, the State Islamic University, Sharif Hidiatullah, Badru Soleil, I blame him entirely, um, because I was working on this project on state Islamist group relations and um, how some state, in, why in some states Islamist groups mobilized peacefully and eschewed violence, and why in some state, other states, um, is you had more Islamist groups 
um, you had peaceful Islamist mobilization, but also violent Islamist mobilization. And the actions of the state. And my colleague Badru Sholeh says to me, Julie, if you want to understand peace, you have to also understand violence. And for about four months, he pushed and he pushed. And um, finally, he set up several meetings for me um, with figures on the periphery of certain Islamist extremist groups. Um, and at the end of this project, and so that went into the book, and at the end of the project, I was left with questions, and so I put them in my papers to write later file and moved on to the seemingly safer study of Islamist parties. And then I started doing more reading about disengagement programs around 2008-2009, and I became captivated with this idea that, that one could disengage from violence and that there were programs and activities that people um, and organizations were doing that could help facilitate that. So I went to Indonesia, said to Badrus, you know, you, you pushed me to do that before. Um, you didn't come with me, so now come with me again. Come with me this time. And so we went and we did research and we found out that there was really not much that was interesting about the programs. Um, that they weren't as widespread and comprehensive as I had thought from, from reading. But one thing that I realized on those trips was that people would talk to me and that Indonesian jihadists would talk to me and they would share their stories. It took me about a year to decide that I wanted that to continue to happen. And then around 2010, um, I committed to this project and um, have been very, it's, it's been fantastic. And why did you pick Indonesia as a case to begin with? Um, Indonesia, as I tell my students, is pretty much one of the most rewarding countries to work on, I would argue, because everything happens there and anything you could ever want to study, you can study using the Indonesian case. Um, the, I originally got interested in Indonesia because I did my study abroad there um, in 1998, and I came home. And a week later, uh, the 32-year dictatorship, dictatorship of Suharto fell. And I had been very interested in how, how do the four of the five major religions manage to coexist in Indonesia, and then six months after I have that thought, you see conflict emerge, communal violence between Muslims and Christians, and I wanted to know, well, why is this happening, and why wasn't it happening before? And there were very simple answers to that. Um, but I was always, after that, I was hooked. And so you say, you, you say to your students that when you study Indonesia, everything happens there. You, Anything... Any research question, hmm. you can answer with Indonesia. But any research question you can answer with Indonesia, but are there different answers from the Indonesian cases when we look at something like disengagement or engagement and radicalization, then what, as your writings would suggest, a lot of the models or a lot of the processes and ideas from terrorism research that we're talking about 
aren't really based on, on this uh, this this area. They're based a lot more on on Europe, on the Middle East, elsewhere. So does it throw up some different answers as well as raising the same uh, all these same questions? It does, and that's what makes it so fascinating. Um, I think Indonesia is an underused comparative case because of that. Um, and what I think a scholar can do is you can embed yourself in the literature and you can, especially in disengagement, and look at that literature and engage with that literature, but always be cognizant of the fact that you are dealing in a country with um, a very long tradition of fringe Islamist extremist movements going back to the era of independence and before. And so you have these multi-generational jihadi families on the fringe. And as a result of that, because you have this very strong familial and kinship component um, that spills over into schools, that spills over into marriages, that spills over into long-standing multi-generational relationships, it's going to work differently in Indonesia because the relational component is going to be stronger. And as a result of that, you can bounce off of the literature. You can say, yes, but. But what you cannot do is expect that what works in Indonesia is it will work the same as it worked in Northern Ireland. Mm. I think this is a, I think this is a vital point at the heart, not just of de-radicalization or disengagement, which you have spent a lot of your recent research looking at, but anything when we're looking at terrorism. And you go on in your in your writings, and we're going to get onto your own writing soon enough. Uh, but you talk about that we don't just we can't just look at national cases. We have to look into localities as well. It can't just be about, okay, this is what will work in Indonesia. It's about this is what will work in this specific area of this specific town or this specific village in Indonesia. It's You have to get that, that focused in. And I think that that's true, but I would not say that that's specific to Indonesia. Um, there was research done on Colombia and uh, DDR programs in Colombia. And one thing that was found was that some there was a, a group of men who were trained in computers, but they were going home to a district where that was not a skill they could put to use. And Indonesia has an issue with perhaps due to um, having this dictatorial legacy and its bureaucracy, they tend to default to top-down. The government tends to default to top-down programs and one size fits all. And one criticism that I heard from colleagues in Indonesian civil society working on terrorist rehabilitation was the imperative to work locally because, first of all, local authorities and local civil society actors would know their locality and the unique aspects of their locality, but also they would know what would, what would work and what the interests of those people um, who were disengaging and were seeking to reintegrate were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, it, I, I think it's a point that can't be raised often enough, and it's something that we talked about in relation to uh, the Sarah Marsden episode, the Bart Sherman episode, we're talking to Kurt Braddock and others as well. And 
so let's let's go back uh, for a sec before we get into your own research. You said that you started reading up about uh, disengagement programs around 2008, 2009. And around that time, there were some excellent uh, pieces coming out on disengagement. And I'm thinking specifically uh, of the edited volume by Tore Bjorgo and John Horgan, uh, process, uh, Leaving Terrorism Behind. You've picked the, the chapter Process of Disengagement from Violent Groups on the Extreme Right from Tori Bjorgo as, as an influential piece for you. But also John's, John Horgan's book Walking Away from Terrorism, accounts uh, of disengagement from radical and extremist movements. So what was it that you were getting from from the writings of Torre and John, and from these two pieces in particular, um, that was influencing the way that you were thinking? I love that question. And those were probably two of the first books I picked up. And I picked up um, the edited volume first because I was looking at Indonesian programs and it had a chapter on that. And then I started reading um, John's chapter in that and Torre's chapter in that. And Tori's chapter, especially the push factors and the pull factors, it made so much sense. And that there were these other factors that would might hold someone back and keep them from leaving the group. And it was very clear that some of them were echoing things that I was finding in this initial 2010 trip to Indonesia. Um, things have gone too far. Um, burnout. Um, being this strong sense of disillusionment with specific um, leaders with the rhetoric being at odds with the reality. Um, and then um, family, the key role of family. And some of these factors, I, I would, that was when I did my first trip to Poso and um, also was speaking to people in Java and I was finding particularly the disillusionment, the things going too far was resonating a lot with the JI people on Java. And John Horgan's book, I think had this amazing impact for me when I thought about how I would write a book on this subject because his use of life history and I've used his life histories in my terrorism political violence class, but also seeing how he at first discussed concept and then he discussed theory and built um, and then he moved into life histories and I thought this is how this is how you convey the point you you let the jihadists speak for themselves and you let the um, people who were involved in terrorism speak for themselves and you let their voices be heard and that is really how how you convey the point so well and then you have a fantastic conclusion that brings it all together and so in terms of not only how it works but also how disengagement works but also in mapping how to write this book and giving me a structure for how to write this book um, when you read the book you can see it's um, it's a very similar structure, and that was so much because of the fantastic use of life history. Because we want these guys to speak for, for themselves. We, and you don't see that often, or perhaps as much as one should, in this literature on radicalization, in this literature on disengagement, we don't see the interviews put in there in a way where 
you're getting the full life picture. You're getting wonderful blurbs. And Renares, for example, is so good at this, putting in these wonderful blurbs. But life history, that, to the best of my knowledge, I've seen that with Najib Azka's dissertation after jihad. Um, but John really put them in there in a way that enabled one by one them to speak for themselves. Yeah. And when you use these in your classes, um, the life histories that are used in Walking Away, what kind of reaction do you get from your students? Are the life histories matching up with what they would have been expecting? Or are there well, surprises there for them? Well, I juxtapose them against my own. So they get the Indonesian experiences and then they get the European experiences. And by then they have gone through um, my the early part of the course they get it at the end and they have first about a five to six week terrorism studies boot camp mm -hmm. to get them thinking like terrorism studies scholars and then they pick a case and they've spent a, about three or four weeks with a case and they've taught a class on that case and so at the end they're seeing the end of the terrorist life cycle um they've looked at the becoming they've looked at the being they're looking at now the disengaging and I think what's interesting for them and how they react to it um, is they have fun, they enjoy and they have a lot of fun comparing and seeing how disillusionment features much more prominently and is more decisive. Um, but that you see in, in John's cases, but that you see the same factors over and over and over again. And before we do the life history cases, we read um, Tori's chapter in Leaving Terrorism Behind. And so what they're functionally doing is that they are looking at the pull, the push and the pull factors and they're trying to see what, they're using the life histories as raw data to see what fits and whether there needs to be new categories of push and pull factors. And so it becomes this wonderful exercise for them in theory testing. And they have great fun with it. And by then, they're very confident about being able to engage this literature because they've been in it for, by this time, about 12 weeks. And and it's just a fantastic exercise. I'd highly recommend it. Yeah, no, it, it, sounds, it sounds like a great, uh, a great exercise for the students. And you're right, it, it gives them access to this raw data and be able to apply um the theories uh, to it it's it's brilliant it's a great great way of doing it so what was what were Tori and john's pieces giving you or what actually i'll turn that question around what was daniel kohler's piece understanding de-radicalization published in 2017 giving you that the john and tory pieces weren't by having this focus on derad versus disengagement well one thing that i want to work on this summer um is to do an article reconceptualizing de-radicalization, um, taking into account certain aspects one can take from the Indonesian case and using that to inform how we think about this concept. And so I picked up this book uh, several weeks ago, and I'm about three quarters of the way through it, and I, I couldn't put it down. And it's... Um, been something where the first several chapters are this exhaustive lit review and so I've basically been using it as a tool to educate myself on all the things I need to read this summer um, for my article and then um, 
I think his typology is is very insightful. Um, and looking at just and this concept of depluralization and repluralization is something that's very sharp thinking. It's about how the ideological component um, takes shape. And the point about the need for family counseling, um, I'm partway through that chapter, but one thing that I find in Indonesia is this incredible need for it. And you need to offer in these programs, and you don't have that, uh, counseling to rebuild frayed family ties, because someone who's been out in jail for eight years who gets out of jail. One thing that I've found is people who have strong family supports are far more likely to stay disengaged and to work toward reintegration um, than those whose families supported their involvement. Um, the key, one of my key findings is people who have family support for continued membership, also peoples who have family support for continued violence are going to remain in the group. They are people who have family support for continued violence are going to remain committed to violence. But those who had strong family support for disengagement, for reintegration, are going to be far more likely to reintegrate successfully and disengage successfully. And that can be from a spouse, and that can be from parents. So this concept of family counseling, especially when you have people who may have um, the 550 Indonesian deportees who have just come home um, from attempting to go to Syria, and the 86, some, 86 or more returnees who have come back from Syria, they didn't expect to come back. They may need help to rebuild family ties that they may have severed prior to going. And people who have gotten out of jail may need help to rebuild frayed family ties because that support is so critical to successful disengagement, successful reintegration, maintenance of disengagement reintegration. And I think that while he says that there is really only one comprehensive and in-depth course and it's too early to assess the program's impact, I think the need for it, the Indonesian case shows the need for it and the potential for it. And so that is something that I would like to um, that is something that made that book especially attractive to me um, because it recognizes it. And of course, like with what you were talking about there and then rewinding back to what you were saying at about the very beginning when you were talking about the Indonesian case, when you've got these multi-generational jihadi families, uh, that poses challenges that, okay, while for certain individuals, as you were saying, those that family counseling might be worthwhile might be uh, something that will enable the continuation of their disengagement. When you do have those support structures in place for continuation of this violence, is, it, should it be a process of, of setting up a life away from the family then if you've got that support for violence to, to enable the disengagement to continue? Well, this is what is so fascinating about Jamal's Lamia as a group. Jamal's Lamia was not a group that went wholly into terrorism. There was a faction largely based in Malaysia um, around a singular individual, Hambali. And Hambali is the guy who had 
what had the vast majority, he had the Al-Qaeda ties. And so if you look at the people who went to the Al-Qaeda training camps, um, they were Hambali's guys um, or people who knew him. He, um, that piece of J.I. based in Malaysia and a few people they managed to co-opt in Indonesia were the people who masterminded the bombing campaign. There was another part of J.I. that either was ambivalent to it or believed that these bombings would be counterproductive. And over time, the group that believed that bombings and terrorist attacks would be counterproductive grew as evidence of its counterproductivity grew. So with after Hambali's arrest in 2003 and the arrest that followed the Bali bombing in 2003, you saw people who were thinking this way moving away from it. You also saw in 2004 and 2005 the splintering of what remained of the pro-bombing wing into a separate organization, or if you could call it an organization, probably more like a separate cell, a separate group um, that called themselves Al-Qaeda in the Malay Archipelago and then Al-Qaeda in Southeast Asia. They had no ties. It was more like signaling Al-Qaeda please love us and Al-Qaeda never returned the love. So you could disengage. This didn't mean J.I. abandoned violence. J.I. was still committed to jihad in areas where you could launch a jihad. But they separated out jihad from bombings. Jihad being um, in legitimate areas of conflict where Muslims were under threat, like Mindanao, like Ambon and Poso during the communal violence, like Afghanistan, um, like Syria. They, so for J.I., you could actually stay in J.I. and migrate to a nonviolent role within J.I. and still remain part of J.I. And so one thing that we see within these multi-generational jihadi families is people doing that. They could quietly go and act it, um, or they could migrate from a violent role to a nonviolent role. Um, because at a certain point, if they wanted to still engage in bombing and terrorism, they left the group and they splintered off from the group. And this is something we see in Indonesian terrorism more often. As groups decide it is counterproductive to do continued terrorist attacks, you have the people who want to do that splintering off and forming new groups. So you can stay in your group, you can still hang out with your friends, or you can move to a different group, probably still hang out with your friends, and um, continue to participate in violence. Um what are these, so what specifically were these nonviolent roles that they were getting? Do you want, could you go a bit more in depth into what that involved um, before um, moving on to uh, the final piece that, that inspired you? That's a very good question. Um, people could and often did participate in study sessions. Um, they might run a business um, that gave a portion of funds to JI. They could um, help a friend. They could hide someone who was on the run from the police. Um, they could um, be involved in media and publishing. So there were many ways that people could be involved, either financially um, attending religious study groups, um, 
helping friends, um, visiting people in jail. Um, many small ways that people could be involved. Yeah, and th this is this comes to a key point that uh, yourself and Kirsten Schultz bring in the introduction to your forthcoming special issue uh, of terrorism and political violence, where uh, you're talking about not just the violence but the support for the terrorism as well and the integral part that this plays and which is often ignored uh, when we're looking at terrorism research this passive and active support is hugely important uh, to really understanding how these groups survive how these groups continue and why and how people are engaged with the groups as well it's uh, I think it's it's one of it's it's a really important point that you make and we're going to get on to that piece uh, in a bit. Um, actually, I wanted to ask you when it came to picking these pieces, you said earlier on is uh, you could have picked seven, eight, nine, ten pieces. How did you how did you whittle it down to these four? Well, it was the works that had the greatest impact on my research that I am either directly engaged in writing right now or on the book. So walking away from terrorism, leaving terrorism behind had profound impacts on how I conceptualized the book, on how I structured the book. They were very much, especially leaving terrorism behind, was the structural model for the book. Um, in terms of the next project, which is looking at um, how people join Islamist extremist groups, I haven't found that structural model yet, so I'm still reading. There's so many good articles on the joining process. Um, you have... Andrew Silk's Becoming a Terrorist. Um, you have um, Profiles Not Pathways, also by John Horgan. Um, you have so much of Mark Sageman's work, um, Understanding Terror Networks, Leaderless Jihad. And, but I haven't found that those one or two pieces that I say, aha, this is going to influence how I'm structuring the book. I'm still in the process of reading and reading and reading and reading and reading. Um, so much of Donatella Della Porta's work as well. Um, but I'm still very much in that process of reading and exploring because it's a new project. Um, the Daniel Kohler book I added because, as I said, I have this article in mind that I want to write this summer, and it's something I'm thinking about almost obsessively. And when I found this, art, this book, I said, oh my goodness, um, this is going to be so helpful in, in getting me to see what I need to know um, and what I need to read and what I need to know. And oh my God, I love this depluralization and this repluralization. And it's currently where my focus lies. And so it was very obviously, it was very obviously why I very much needed to include that book. Mm. And then Sola's book, it's a history of Indonesian terrorism um, from the Darul Islam era, era to JI, becoming JI, and the initial years when 
JI members were engaged in terrorism. And to me, it although it wasn't as much academic scholarship in the pure academic sense, um, it didn't have, you know, a robust lit review. It didn't have, you know, a thesis. It, it was very much something written by a journalist as a very in-depth account of what is of the historical trends. It really, um, I think it's probably what I cited the most it was um, in terms of understanding the historical period um, for the history chapter where I really tried to understand how Darl Islam behaved and how it made its decision and how it functioned. And then the breakaway to JI, it, it really educated me mm. about that early and that middle part. Um, and so for me, that was so informative because it gave me an education. So like, this is probably the toughest question I'm going to ask you. But if you're to talk to someone who knows nothing about this Indonesian case and you've got Salah's book there and what would you say are the core bits of this history that needs to be understood in order to get a grasp of what's happening uh, today and over the past few years? Wow, that's an awesome question. We could have a whole podcast series on the answer, I'm sure. I would say, or you could just have Sola himself onto your podcast. Yeah. I would say that hmm, first to understand that Jamaz Lamia didn't just come out into being with the Bali bombing. That you have this long-standing Islamist extremist fringe in Indonesia that started out as a series of rebellions. And from there became an underground movement. And that J.I. splintered from that underground movement. So that would be the first thing I would want people to take away. The second thing I would want people to take away is that J.I. was not united in the decision to do bombings. That this was not an organizational central decision to do bombings. This was something that a faction of J.I. did. And that that faction was a Malaysia-based faction, not the Indonesia-based faction. And that this faction was around a specific boarding school and a specific set of individuals. And that they very much were the masterminds. And I think that that's a second key aspect because understanding J.I. is tricky because it's easy when the whole leadership gets behind terrorism to understand leadership to understand how you address terrorism. But J.I. didn't have that. It had two, overlap, two somewhat overlapping circles. So a Venn diagram is much more easy, is much easier to understand J.I.'s relationship to terrorism. And where you had two circles and there's an overlapping portion of those circles. And one is bigger than the other. The ones who thought terrorism was ill-advised is a larger circle than the ones who 
were fully endorsing Osama bin Laden's 1998 jihad. Uh, I'm not sorry, 1998 fatwa. 1998 fatwa. So. Those would be the two key pieces that I would say that people should understand from that book. That's fascinating. Like, could you tell us a bit more about this boarding school? Can you say that again? Could you tell us a bit more about this boarding school where there was this faction who were pushing for this engagement in bombings? Well, um, the boarding school is called Lukman al-Hakim, and it was based in Malaysia. It was closed, I believe, in 2001, but I admittedly am not a dates person, so please check that date. No um, it was the one boarding school that was closed in the Malaysian crackdown against Skola Agama Rakyat, which was a certain type of religious school. Um, and these were a lot of the key people who were involved in the bombing. Um, people who were students at that school, teachers at that school, and directed and directors of that school. But that didn't mean that everyone associated with that school was inevitably involved in bombings, mm. because one of the life histories in my book is a man named Ali Fauci, who was involved in the building of the school, who was involved in teaching at that school, because of who his half-brother was. But he disengaged and reintegrated probably more successfully than anyone else in the book. And that had a lot to do with who Ali Fauci was as a person, the opportunities that came to him, and his refusal to get involved in the bombings, even though he knew a lot of the individuals and was friendly with a lot of the people who did. Um, so I wouldn't say one is a proxy for the other, but there is a lot of overlap between the people who taught, directed, and went to that school and people who were involved in the bombings. And that was because the Malaysian wing was far more accepting because they had Hambali at the helm, um, perhaps, um, but they were far more accepting of Osama bin Laden's 1998 fatwa that legitimated killing um, and spilling the blood of civilians. And you mentioned as well that J.I. splintered from the underground movement, the long-standing Islamic extremist. Dar Islam. Why? What caused that? Um, caused that splintering? There is some dispute over what caused the split, but it was. Um, it's been attributed to disagreements between um, the head of. Darul Islam at that time, a man named Achingan Mastuki and Abdullah Sunkar. Abdullah Sunkar was far more Salafi in orientation. He wanted the group to um, be more Salafi in orientation. Um, and Achingan Mastuki had some Sufi tendencies. And so the two could not coexist. Abdullah Sunkar wanted a very different organization than Achingan Mastuki. And there's also been something said more recently that Abdullah Sankar saw the, the best model for the group as a jama'at, as a community, whereas Achingan Masduki um, was thinking more in terms of it, dar, having an Islamic state. Um, but a community at that time was something more realistic, more practical. And so they weren't building from the Islamic state concept. Um, anymore. They, that what didn't mean that they were abandoning it. Um, 
but at the time, what they saw was something more productive being this concept of an Islamic community. Um, similar, they at the time, Quentin Temby's latest, uh, he just uh, finished a dissertation last year that spoke to them being inspired by Algama al-Islamiyya in Egypt and this concept of the Jama'at as this guiding foundation and this organizational foundation. So that may have also been a part of it, just differences over conceptualization. But again, I want to stress that that doesn't mean that Jamal Islamiyah ever abandoned this idea of eventually building an Islamic state in Indonesia, making an Indonesian Islamic state. It just means in terms of how they conceptualized what they were, they saw themselves as a Jamal. Fascinating. No, it's it's a really, really interesting case. And I, I think by by including Salah's piece there, it's it's a sounds like it's the perfect introduction for anyone who wants to get that background understanding, that history on the roots of as the as the title of the book says, the roots of Indonesian terrorism. It's it seems like a, a must read um, for anyone. But much more important, the must-reads are your own pieces now. So thank you. Let's uh, let's go on to those. So we have the first piece that we're going to focus on of your own work is the piece that you did with Kirsten Schultz, why they joined Pathways into Indonesian Jihadist Organizations, which is part of the the forthcoming uh, special issue on uh, ter- in terrorism and political violence that you you've edited. What were the major aims and the major findings uh, from this article that you did with Kirsten? That's a thank you for that question. Um, this article was really exciting to do um, because what we were able to do was we constructed this data set of 49 interviews and then f- an additional 57 court transcripts and uh, interrogation depositions that enabled us to have a a picture of pathways to entry among um, not only Jamaslamia members and members of local Jamaslamia affiliates, but ISIS, uh, members of pro-ISIS groups, um, also members of um, the the new generation of J.I. members who are not talking to foreign researchers. Um, Also groups like Mujahideen Kumpak, which was a humanitarian aid organization that got militarized in the atmosphere of the Ambon conflict. So we really had this wonderful um, set of cases to work from. And what we did was we identified four pathways into Islamist extremist groups. Um, study sessions, second, conflict, third, um, kinship, and fourth, Islamic schools, a certain subset of Islamist boarding schools um, run by uh, Jamaa Islamiyah and pro-ISIS affiliates. Now, one thing that we found across these four pathways was that Social bonds and relationships were a key driver in the joining process, irrespective of whether one joined via study circles or via um, conflict 
or schools or kinship. And they function differently. In the study circles pathway, we see over time these are outsiders joining by a study circle, so they are not from JI families and or and they are not from JI schools. And so these people are narrowing their friends over time. Um, they are leaving other organizations over time that they were a part of, and they are becoming solidly a part of this community. Within the conflict pathway, it is both social bonds and then imagine social bonds, people motivated to go to Ambon and go to Poso out of a sense of solidarity and community with um, people that they may not have met but they feel kinship to. As well as for the locals, it is the killing of family members, the killing of friends, the seeing dead bodies of people in their communities going down the river five, six, seven a day, um, and feeling these senses of in-group social bonds and social relationships and friendships, but also this community sense of solidarity and personal loss. Um, and then for people who joined, who were part of the JI families, um, it's social bonds and the sense of direct kinship bonds being brought in by because your whole family is in it and, and you know no different. Or you were brought in by an older sibling um, and all the younger siblings went with you. Or an uncle brought you in. For some reason, when it is not parents or siblings, I often found it to be an uncle. Um, and then finally, um, schools where... By being, by being part of this school, you are being groomed to either be a supporter or sympathizer, or you're brought in as a member. Cert, you had a subset within these schools, um, these 40 to 60 schools, you had a subset who were invited to go through the process of becoming a member. And the larger community within the school was expected to be a sympathizer, supporter, to have a sympathetic ideological worldview. And so as a result, it is not about the narrowing of a social circle, but the building of a social circle that either um, enables you to become a member or enables you to become sympathetic to those who are. And that was, I think, very exciting finding is that social bonds as social bonds impact the way out, they also impact the way in. With these four different pathways, we've got study circles, conflict, schools, kinship. Are there any of these four pathways which are the most powerful in sustaining uh, engagement in, uh, in these Islamist extremist groups? Or is this, um, is this beyond the possibility of measuring? I would say... I think family. One thing that I'm hoping to write about later this year is to try to document as the way and affect the way out and to take the nexus of cases I have of people who told me their stories about the way in and the way out. And it would be admittedly a narrower section of cases because it would be the original uh, set of cases for why terrorists quit. But one thing that I was able to do with that book was to document for uh, the way in. Um, not in the same level of detail, but we can see does who has the more involved disengagement trajectories. And what I found is that 
people who were motivated to join by a conflict have very involved disengagement trajectories if they disengage. Um, people who were motivated via study circles, it can vary. Um, but a lot of them also have, a good number of them also have these more involved disengagement trajectories and reintegration trajectories. But people who join via families and via schools, because their networks are so much stronger, especially if it's a parent or a sibling, the disengagement trajectory is, is more surface. It's more based on rational assessment of cost and benefits and disillusionment. And it's harder to construct that alternative social network. Oh, it's it, it makes perfect sense when you put it like that. I think a lot of our, our listeners will be uh, a bit taken aback by something that you said a while back that it would be great to get some context around it. This about Mujahideen Compact, which started as a humanitarian aid organization and then transitioned towards violence. Could you give a bit of background into into that process? Uh, because it sounds it sounds fascinating. How the, what, what exactly was going on there? I'm going to plug Kirsten Schultz. You should have her on your program because she is actually working on a book on the Ambon conflict and knows it better than probably anyone else out there, hands down. Um, she and Mujahideen Kumpak, um, Kumpak starts out as the humanitarian aid faction of an organization called Dewan Dakwa Islamia Indonesia, which was an organization that did publishing and media and Islamic propagation, calling Muslims to become better Muslims. And Kumpak was its humanitarian relief organization. Well, one branch, the solo branch of Mujahideen, of Kumpak, starts, people start going, um, there were other branches of Kompak that didn't get militarized, but the solo branch started sending people to Ambon in the um, um, period after the conflict breaks out, and they start sending humanitarian relief work. Um, well, almost immediately, um, some of these members have relationships with JI members. Bless you. And... So some JI people who are frustrated that JI in the months following the outbreak of the Ambon conflict is not moving fast enough. Some of these men start piggybacking on Mujahideen Kompak. Well, the first batch of people who go get there and they get to a war zone. And so some, they get, some of them decide to take up arms. They do humanitarian aid work, but at a certain point, certain members say, you know, do you want to get training? And so they got training. And this branch of Kompak participated in the Ambon conflict. They participated in the Poso conflict. And the Poso conflict, where I know their presence better, they were very much the group that did not give you indoctrination for two, three months um, before... Um, saying, okay, now you can go and do, um, um, and do violent attacks. It was very much learn on the fly, um, learn by doing, hi, here's a gun, 
um, this is how you fire it. They did not do a month or two of ideological indoctrination beforehand. Um, but what we also need to understand is that Jamaat Lamia members who wanted to go co-opted Kumpak to an extent for their own purposes to send their own people who wanted to go to Ambon um, and who wanted to be involved in Ambon. And that, of course, was going to have a militarizing effect because the JI members had already ascertained that this was a Maidan Jihad Yangsa, this was a legitimate field of battle, and they had knowledge, they had training. They had knowledge by this time from training in the Philippines or from training in Afghanistan, and they felt obligated to use it. It's, it's a really, really interesting case. It's something that, yeah, I definitely, I definitely need to, to, get, uh, to get Kirsten on, on the show as well, just to, to be able to go even more in depth, and it's fascinating. Could you tell our listeners a bit more about these study circles as well? What exactly is involved in these study circles? Um, what sort of size is it? What would be the, the demographics of, of people who are, who are involved in this? Well... In terms of joining, you have people, it's that typical demographic of um, late high school, maybe 17, 18, um, 19, through early to mid-20s, um, maybe late 20s. Um, but that typical period, that, you know, 17, 18 to probably 24, 25, 26. And within people who joined JI prior to the Bali bombing, um, you had multiple levels. So you had um, the public study sessions, the public pingajian, the public study sessions. And these might be held by um, people who are not JI members. Um, they might be people who knew JI members, and JI members would come and observe and see who was going and see who was reliable, reliably attending. And over time, people who are in these study sessions might be invited to attend a private study session. And it might be that the leader of the study group themselves was inviting them and saying, hey, you should go attend this. Or it might be someone in the group who was um, sitting in who was a representative of the group might invite them to come in and attend. And they would do a period of time in that study group. And then they would be invited to a, an even smaller group where they would get a, a short training. At that time, it was called MTI. And they would get a short training. And this would still be things very generally about um, general religious concepts. Then there would be another level. They would get paramilitary training. Then, for a few days. Then there would be another level of study circle, and another level of study circles, and then these later levels of study circles, some which would be short, several-day or week-long uh, events. Some of these would be still broader study circle events, lasting several months. At a later point, now you're several years in, you're learning then about jihad. You're learning about the concept of jam'at. You're learning about the concept of bay'at, and bay'at meaning the oath, um, jam'at meaning community. Um, and then 
only then if you've passed all these levels and it's been several years by now, you are then invited um, to become a member of the group. Now, ISIS worked a little differently with the pro-ISIS groups. Um, it was described that there were public study sessions and then perhaps as a sign of the times, you would be given, um, you would be sent a, a message via WhatsApp. Hey, if you like that, you should come to our event, um, our private study circle. And so people who wanted to go to these private study groups would then go to these private study groups. And again, there were layers. And people would be assessed for um, signs of religiosity. You know, how often were they praying? Were they fasting on Mondays and Thursdays? And what were, you know, other signs of religiosity as well? Um, and then after they were deemed to be ready, um, they would go, if they were interested in going to Syria, um, they would be pushed to go to Syria. But if they were interested in going to Syria, they would have to go before a Hishra committee. And the Hishra committee um, would talk to them, would ask them questions, would try to ascertain commitment. And if they passed that, then they would be given the bayat and um, sent off to Syria. But for the pro-ISIS people, they would have to fund their own ways. J.I. was helpful in facilitating that. But to get to Syria, many Indonesians sold all their possessions. Um, to double back to Jamal Zlamiya, um, after the Bali bombing, Jamal Zlamiya's study circle pathway became a little more simplified. It became less multi-tiered. They could not necessarily guarantee you would be getting paramilitary training as well. They were being watched too much. So you would go from those public study sessions where you would be watched for a period of time into a private study session. And after that, after a period of time in the private study session, then you would be then given um, the oath. But it was, you didn't have that multiple, multi-tiering over and over and over again into constantly smaller, 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 smaller winnowing just because they couldn't do it. So what you have with these study sessions for JI from this incredibly involved pathway that took, you know, two to five years to this simplified pathway that still took roughly the same amount of time um, to ISIS, which uh, utilized far more modern technologies in it, um, but also had this multi-tiered, multi-layered study circles. They are a very important pathway. If you are going from being an outsider to trying to be a member, they're going to vet you far more carefully. They are going to test you far more carefully. They're going to assess you far more carefully. And they're going to take a lot of time to do this. And one thing that was a point that was made to me was that just because somebody attends the public study sessions or the private study sessions doesn't mean they ever make it to, to the oath. A person can attend these public study sessions or these private study sessions for decades and never be invited to take the oath. Um, it's very much a winnowing process. No, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's something that, that really, uh, really does need to be, to be looked into as well and to be understood if anyone is to, to understand this process of engaging uh, with these groups, engaging with these Indonesian Islamist extremist groups. So we've, we've got that understanding 
uh, of what was going on there. How does that fit with the different models that we've had in the past, the models of Viktorovitz, uh, Sageman Silk, Horgan, uh, Mokadam, uh, and others? How did you find uh, that those models fitted what, um, what we saw in Ind Indonesia, or where were their differences? Well, first I would say, and Nava Naranias, and that was one of those works that I so badly wanted to put in, mm. Nava Naranias' forthcoming article in the special issue of Terrorism and Political Violence explores the context of women who joined the pro-ISIS groups. And in there, the Wiktorowitz model, she shows that the Wiktorowitz model with the personal crisis works very, very well. Um, but I rarely saw that with the men, and particularly um, the J.I. guys, the Mujahideen Kompak guys, Tanuruntu members and the members of the local conflict-oriented Mujahideen, they, of course they had a personal crisis, their area, um, but it wasn't necessarily a personal crisis, it was a community crisis, it was being radicalized amid communal violence. Um, but the sense of personal crisis that you one might expect or um, wasn't happening with the men. I did not see that with the... Um, and so I don't think the Wiktorowitz model of um, the personal crisis leading to the cognitive opening and the frame alignment. Frame alignment definitely happens, but it it's not being motivated um, by a, a sense of, of personal crisis. I think Indonesia being a democracy also makes Magadam ill-fitting um, because those senses of, you know, the ground floor and the first floor where you have um, the ground floor and the first floor where you have this sense of the system being rigged and things are not going to get better and this huge inequality and injustice. It's not there in the same level in Indonesia because you can, you can work for your goals. You may not get them, but you can... There, there's... I don't want to say that there's a leveler playing field, but you don't have it because it isn't, but you don't have that same kind of butting up against a ceiling where nothing is ever going to change that, that you do in, in a lot of these Middle Eastern countries. Um, so I don't think that that works so well either, although um, the third floor people, um, I wouldn't say externalizing, you know, the externalization of aggression and the displacement of aggression um, works in the Indonesian case either. But what you do have um, is that socialization with like-minded on, on the third level. That works in Indonesia. And then by at and role assignment. So perhaps to a degree levels three and to five of McAdams staircase might work in Indonesia. Um, I think you see with Sageman the strong role of relationships and friendships, um, and that piece works for Indonesia. But there isn't that, again, that close that close fit. I think you, you don't have that close fit 
that you do with the other case. I think in Indonesia, it, it may require pulling from different models or perhaps the construction of a new one. It, no, it's I like I, I really can't wait for this special issue to come out. It's um I've see I've gotten a, a glimpse into it from uh, from reading your introduction and from reading uh, the article that yourself and Kirsten did as well. But there are other cases that are going to be in it looking at as well as Indonesia looking at Pakistan, the Philippines, Bangladesh. So uh, yeah, it's it's going to be a really worthwhile addition. Do you know when it's it's going to come out or has that been uh, verified yet? It has not been confirmed yet, but it will be sometime this year online and then next year in print. Brilliant. Yeah, as soon as it's online, I will be tweeting it. Good stuff. Good stuff. It's uh, it's definitely something that that will be will be worthwhile. And so that was that piece was dealing with the why they why people join. But the final two pieces that you've put forward um, are about disengagement, as we were talking about earlier on when we were looking at the works that inspired you, specifically uh, Tori Bjorgo, John Horgan's and Daniel Kohler's work, uh, Kohler's work, which looked at DRAD. Um, so you've got your, your book published by Cornell University Press, Why Terrorists Quit, and also a 2017 article, The Disengagement of Indonesian Jihadists. Um, I think it's worthwhile talking about both of these together. But before we do that, are, what would be the core what would be the core differences between the book and the article? Or do you see the, the book as an expanded version of the article itself? Well, the article is how I was thinking about the book um, early earlier on. Um, the, I think you can see parallels between... There's about six pages of overlap between the article and chapter two of the book. Um, over time, I came to understand that the role of relationships um, as the linchpin of successful disengagement in a way that I didn't have that understanding in 2012, 2013 when I was writing that article. Um, so the article was, and I think some of the terminologies changed, and I was able to look at recidivism in the book, whereas I um, in the article, I didn't necessarily have a case of recidivism, which I knew in the same level to the same detail. So I would say that it was um, early thinking and later thinking. Um, from this, what would your, what do you feel are, is, are the major findings from this this project, from both the earlier and the later stage, from the article and from the book? What would you say are, are the core findings? What are these reasons for disengagement of why uh, terrorists quit in the these uh, Indonesian cases? So the book identifies these four key factors, and they're emotional, rational, relational, and psychological factors. Um, the establishment of an alternative social network, priority shifts, disillusionment, and um, rational assessment of context, cost, and benefit. And what the book argues, um, and these four factors are drivers of disengagement, 
and two of them of reintegration. And the book argues that the linchpin of successful disengagement and reintegration is the construction of an alternative social network of friends and mentors and family members, who are supportive family members, that can serve as a counterbalance to the pull of in-movement ties and priority shifts where one comes to refocus away from in-movement demands towards a post-group, post-jihad identity centered around new employment, opportunities, family, and furthering one's education. And two other factors that feature prominently in the literature but play secondary roles here, uh, facilitating disengagement but not necessarily reintegration, are disillusionment, particularly with the tactics of the movement, and rational assessment of context, cost, and benefit. And these factors interact with one another in different disengagement narratives um, to push a person forward towards disengagement and what we hope, reintegration. One of the things that might be standing out for people when you're putting that forward is the absence of the role of ideology. Um, did you see ideology playing a role at all in this or was it, uh, was it more these uh, or, yeah, did it play a role at all? Well, for one person, um, I tell his life history um, in chapter three, I believe. His name, he goes by the pseudonym Anas. Um, he was disillusioned. One factor for him, he was disillusioned as his friends um, moved towards Takfiri ideology. So for him, and he's exceptionally well-educated, has more degrees than you, me, and just about all of us combined. Um, when his friends moved from the realm of what he thought was rational and practical into Takfiri ideology, he felt like, I'm done. But it wasn't just for him that his friends became Takfiris. It's that they also broke off the friendship over ideological disagreements. So I think that that is, um, but that's simply one case. When people have talked about ideological components to disengagement, it's about the rise of that Takfiri ideology. But I didn't see anything else where ideology was a motivator. No, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's conspicuous in its absence, really. And it's, but it's an important... It's an important uh, point to raise, an important issue to to um, to discuss and to think about. One of the things that really impressed me um, about your whole your whole process is that you didn't rely on one-off interviews. You relied uh, on repeat interviews with with individuals. What was uh, your thought process behind this? Why was this important to you? Well, I think it's so important, and because I'm not Indonesian and I'm not Muslim and I'm not of the group. Um, and so what I did first was I went in with people they trusted. So if I want to meet someone, I'll ask someone that I know who trusts me and who I have a relationship with, oh, do you have a relationship with this person? And if they say, I used to, um, but right now they don't like me, um, then I wouldn't go in with them. I would go in with someone else. Um, if so, but if two people have a friendship or a mentoring relationship, then that's clearly the person to go in with. 
So, but even after I've done that, I still need to build trust with the person. I need them to come and see me as someone who will listen to them, who will not alter their words, who they can trust to share their actual story. Um, and that requires iterated meetings. That requires somebody getting to know you. That requires feeling like this person cares about you. Um, and so for me, it seemed like the rational, natural thing to do also when you meet someone multiple times, you get to see, especially with disengagement, you get to see them move from point A to point B along a disengagement trajectory. So I get to see someone at the point where they're starting a business. I get to see them at the point where the business fails and then they start a new business. I see someone, um, one of the, I think, really rewarding cases for me was uh, a guy called BR, BR, um, who picked BR as a, um, a shortening of one of his aliases. He was a poso jihadist. I met him the first time when he had just gone to jail. Well, I saw him several times in jail. And then I was able to see him in when he got out of prison at his mother's house, see him as he tried to start a business, couldn't get funding for the business, tried to start a different business. And now, unfortunately, this happened after the book went to press, but he created a film. And now the film is touring all over Jakarta. And what started out as a little locally funded film called Jalan Pulan about um, the experience of the poso jihadists and the road out, the pathway of disengagement, pathway of reintegration, is now a film that is being shown in Jakarta and has been launched in Jakarta at multiple venues. And he's also starting a humanitarian um, a community building organization. And he's also now become this person who is relied upon by different non-governmental organizations to help them with their research. So this is a young man who is becoming a researcher and a filmmaker and this is part of his reintegration trajectory. But if I had just interviewed him that time in 2010, I wouldn't have any of this. But I have a relationship with him. And not only with him, but with the woman who hid him from the police for two years, with his mother, with his brother. Um, and that in itself, you get a far more fuller picture of a person's disengagement and reintegration trajectory when you can spend time with them over years. You can't do that otherwise. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. It's, uh, it's, I think it is, if not the strength, it's one of the key strengths of this book, which w makes it, it's such a valuable read um, for anyone who picks it up. Um, it's, it's something, that, it would be an interesting process to compare your findings as they are now versus if you had just analyzed the very first interview you did with 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 uh, each of your interviewees it would be interesting to see where the core differences would be um but it, it makes it a much more 
a much more solid, reliable piece of work that we can really draw something out of as well. In it, you talk about the um, importance of life skills training and professional development. Uh, could you go into a bit, a bit of detail about that, about the role that this plays uh, in the disengagement process? Well, the first thing that's important to know is that Indonesian disengagement programs are the ones that have been successful have been successful on a very small scale. Um, there's more counter-radicalization programs where we can speak to larger scale findings. But in terms of disengagement and reintegration, they've been small scale. And the programs that have had that small scale success are the ones that have focused on life skills training and professional development, especially in helping someone reconceptualize post-jihad uh, post-group identity, um, and I don't mean post-group by necessarily severing all ties with the group because this is the key thing in Indonesia. No one ever fully leaves. Your most disengaged, your most reintegrated member will still have in-movement friends because it being a member, because these groups were part, um, had people who did terrorism and people who didn't, one could move between them and still stay in. There wasn't the penalty for leaving in the same way that you would have with, let's say, the Ulster Volunteer Forces um, in Northern Ireland. It was easier to migrate from a violent to a nonviolent role. It was easier to go inactive. They don't like it when you shout I'm out from the rooftops and give a press conference and write a book. But that also doesn't mean that you're going to receive death threats for doing that. It doesn't mean that your friends before aren't going to stay your friends. It just may mean that some people who you socialized with before may not want to socialize with you. Um, so this is something very key about the Indonesian case. Um, also, you have multiple narratives about the legitimacy of the use of violence in the Indonesian case and under what conditions violence is suitable and not suitable. Um, but professional development, what that does is it enables someone to reconceptualize a post-jihad, post-group identity that can counterbalance the pull of the others because it makes you employed, it makes you gainfully employed. And if you are gainfully employed, you are going to make new friends, you are going to make new associates, you are going to interact with other people and experientially reconsider prior held views in light of new experiences, in light of new information. But if a person has a career that they're building, they're going to have some investment in that. And as a result, when that old friend, who is still your old friend, comes and says, hey, can you take three weeks off and come and participate in a training, you may be more likely to consider it, but ultimately say no, because you don't want to jeopardize what you've built. Um, and I think that that is the power of professional development, that it gives you gainful employment, it helps create an alternative picture of who you are and who you could be. It's a really interesting, um, when you combine it with the reasons for disengagement that you gave, and I'm thinking specifically about the priority shift, this, these life skills training and professional development 
it makes this priority shift more achievable in a way. It's if your priority is changing, not it's that change in priority isn't always going to seem realistic and you're not always going to have the ability to achieve it. But if there is some support like these life skill trainings and professional development, it can make it more achievable and can establish and solidify um, this priority shift and make it uh, and make it much more permanent. I think for the people that you mentioned earlier on, those people who sold everything, never expecting to come back, sold everything, um, it's so much more difficult for them. What challenges, I'm sure a lot of the challenges are very obvious, but what are the key challenges for those individuals uh, in relation to their reintegration as well as their disengagement? Well, I think the first challenge would be that they may have, in some cases, entire families went. So you have this reverberating within a family um, and within an extended family. And so how is that going to affect that family? How is that going to affect their ties to one another? Second, um, with the returnees, um, we're seeing that the women and the children are not being sent to jail, but many of the men are. So what happens to the women and the children um, when they have experienced their own traumas in some cases, um, or in some cases might still be ideologically quite committed, um, but left for other reasons? Um, how do they rebuild a life? Um, especially if their breadwinner is now in prison. I think third, you have um, the fact that people who are coming home may have experienced trauma. Some of the 550 of the deportees, they spent a good amount of time in Turkish prisons. So what do you do with that? These people may, especially children, they are going to need programming tailored play therapy, um, programming tailored towards helping them figure out how to play in a healthy way, how to learn in a healthy way. Um, how to reintegrate them into their communities, how to in, enable them to reassess prior held views, but also to realize that, that they were misled so that they can become productive members of society. Because I think Mia Bloom said it at one point that she didn't believe that one or two years being a kid in the caliphate meant that you were lost forever. And I would agree with that. Um, but sadly for the returnees at present, um, there is no programming. There's programming for the deportees um, by the Indonesian government, but none for the returnees. And that, I think, is, is really lacking and really needs to be changed. Oh, definitely. It's, it's definitely something that, that needs to be changed. And that point you raised about, um, about trauma, about we need to be able to, to consider the role of PTSD in, uh, in disengagement and reintegration and what follows as well. It's, um, it's something definitely that needs to be be touched on and needs to be looked at in a lot more detail by go you've mentioned it already but i'd like 
just to to draw on this a bit more by looking at it over this extended period of time you're able to um to look at recidivism as well and did you have many cases of recidivism from from the cases that you looked at well i had one prominent one there were other cases of recidivism um but among the people that I was interviewing repeatedly, there was one notable one. You had people who may have physically disengaged because they were in jail and then they got out. Um, and then they went right back to it. Um, so if we call that recidivism, there were more. Um, but in my thinking, someone who, disent, uh, who uh, was active in a group, went to jail, left, tried to make it legit, um, got rearrested, came out, tried to be legit, got rearrested. I had one of those. And what was, what was the, what led to that? Well, I think here is where again that push for professional development, training for professional development, and focus on the priority shift is so key. Um, because this was a man, and I call him Reza in the book. He he came from a gut family. He would, the things he was really, really good at was transporting people illicitly over state lines and guns. He came from a gun family. His family was, had members of police, members of military in it. Um, as long as he can remember, he was around guns. He liked guns. And so while he tried his hands at being a motorcycle taxi cab driver and an Uber driver, on the side, he always had a gun running business, and the police were very well aware of this. Um, he actually had been tasked at one point to participate in a gun buyback program on behalf of the authorities, um, where he was one of the figures um, um, participating in that, not giving away his own guns, but collecting guns from others. Um, so they clearly knew what he was doing. Um, but at some point, he has always sold guns to the wrong person. And this has led him to go back to jail. And when he got out of jail a second time, he was selling guns, but he was also training people. And he was being pressured to um, give trainings. Um, he was being pressured to give trainings to people in um, the pro-ISIS community. And he was really trying very hard to resist that. Um, but in the end, he went back to prison on gun charges. And so in this case, what would happen if he had been given some help and some instruction in how to build a different kind of business other than a gun business? Or if he wanted to go back to school to get a degree, if he had been given support to go back to school and get that degree, he might have had a completely different pathway. Being a jihadi, it gives you transferable skills. If you, it may sound odd to say it, but the man has transferable skills. Transporting people across state lines gives a person a certain skill set that can be used in the illicit economy as well as the illicit economy. Yeah. Uh, selling guns gives a person skills that can be used in the illicit economy as well as the illicit economy. Divorce it from guns, you can still talk about skills and sales. Mm. Yeah. So clearly the man can 
divorce his illicit skill set from the illicit skill set. And if he could do that, perhaps there'd be room there um, to build a career that didn't have him going to jail every few years. Because with him, I mean, there's definitely hope. He wants to stay on the licit side. It's just that he can't make a living that way, and he loves guns. If he was in the U.S., he'd be an NRA member. Yeah, it's it's this development of an alternative skill set, and ident it's that that process of identifying what the transferable skills are. It can be uh, it can be sometimes a, something that's often missed, I suppose, when uh, when we're looking at this, and it's something that we maybe should be concentrating on a bit more. So. These are your own piece of research as well as the piece of research that have inspired you. And as someone who is immersed in the terrorism literature, in the terrorism studies literature, you've got, you've got a good understanding of, uh, of the, the health of the area at the, at the moment. So how do you feel the strength is of terrorism studies as a whole at the moment? I think it's very strong if we look at the new work that's coming out. I mean, people, the work of the past 10 years, the past 15 years, we're seeing the work get more sophisticated. We're seeing people understand perhaps mistakes that were made early on and try to correct. We're seeing scholars work with technologies that would be unimaginable um 20 years ago um i can't wait for small arms children and terrorism to come out um and that's mia bloom's book with john horgan um because of what that's going to afford us the window that's going to afford us and the rigor of uh, the different multi-method approaches that were used um, what a window that's going to afford us into understanding children and terrorism. Um, I keep asking because um, I think that that could be real of real use with the deportees and the returnees in Indonesia. I can see, I think we also have a clearer picture of who is doing really good work among the young scholars, and you're having so many of them on your show, and then of the older generation of scholars. And the work that's coming out, it's so interesting, and it's building on each other, and you're having so many different people making connections with one another, and then working together on projects across continents, across universities. Um, and I think it's really exploding. I have such great hope and optimism um, for terrorism studies going forward. Um, there's just so much good work being done and such a willingness to say, um, okay, you know what? Things need to be done differently and this is how they need to be done differently. And um, this kind of work is not acceptable anymore. And I think the recognition of that as well. Yeah. So in my area of the world, a lot of what that means is field work and iterated field work and relationship building. Um, but you're also seeing the large end work um, being done in much more thoughtful, much more critical ways um, than, than 10, 20 years ago. Yeah, it's, 
I think it's this is something that that is echoing a lot as what of what has been said by others before as well. I think it's it is it is in root health there are new methods that need to be used, new theories that need to be applied or existing theories from elsewhere uh, and different questions that need to be asked. But what we have at the moment is some it's with some of the strongest research that there has ever been in this area, in, in, in my opinion. Julie, thank you so much for being on today's podcast. It's been really fascinating talking to you and, and hearing about and reading your research. Uh, for thank anyone you. who wants to engage further with Julie's research, there are links to the, to the pieces that inspired her, as well as her own uh, piece of research on uh, the the Talking Terror website uel.ac.uk slash TURC. There isn't yet a link um, to her uh, 2018 piece, the special issue from uh, terrorism and political violence, but once those uh, are up online, we'll be updating uh, Judy's profile to, uh, to bring that in. So, thank you, thank you so much. Uh, as always, if you want to share with us any of your feedback about this episode or any of the other episodes, be sure to tweet at us with the hashtag TalkingTerror to at T-E-R-C-U-E-L. And be sure to come back next week where I'll be talking to Professor Paul Taylor of Lancaster University, the director of CREST, um, to talk to him about his research and the research that has inspired him as well. Until then, chat to you soon. Bye.